listening to Bleeding Page Podcast. Join authors Chad Lutsky and Jason Brandt as they delve into writing and publishing the dark side of fiction. Welcome back to Bleeding Page. How's it going, Chad? It's going all right, man. It's going all right, except for this cold. Yeah, that sucks. Yeah, and, and if people are watching this video and I cut out, it's because I'm probably blowing my nose. That's uh, that's always good for an intro when we're the two of us. Well, are just talking I just about want. I, I didn't <laughs> want. I, I watch podcasts sometimes, and I and I, I've seen a couple where I think, man, dude, you're being really rude, you know, or or um, even even Jeremiah a couple times when we were doing paleo cheese. I'm like, dude, what are you? Some of the stuff that he would bring up or something with the guests. I'm like, dude, what were you thinking? Talking about, you know, talking about uh, what was he talking about? He was talking about the uh, edging one time. Jesus. To to someone he didn't know. Oh. And okay. um uh yeah, I was like uh we laughed at, about it, but I was like, dude, so yeah, I, I guess I get kind of self-conscious in it. I don't ever want to be rude to a guest, so that's why I told Alan too. Yeah, so if you're watching this and you see me with a blank screen, um not being rude, it's uh don't want to blow my nose in front of everyone. I just assumed you were railing lines of coke. That's what I would have gone with. Yeah, you yeah. So you said Alan. We uh, interviewed Alan Baxter this week. He's a British-Australian multi-award-winning author of horror and other things. You might know him from The Rue, which just kind of blew up on social media Mm -hmm. and Amazon two years ago with a great cover of a killer kangaroo on it. And it was a great interview. He had lots of interesting tidbits and um, insights for us. Especially... Uh, the fight scene stuff. We got schooled on writing fight scenes very briefly, and he made a lot of sense. And um, and he, he talked about you know it makes sense that Joe Lansdale writes good fight scenes because Joe Lansdale has dedicated his life to martial arts as well, so he knows what he's talking about. Yeah, Just yeah. Like I, I write a lot of fight scenes, so I'm curious to read his book to see what advice he gives on it. I'm uh, kind of curious because I write a lot of fight scenes. My books are basically all action. So I'm and you get to see, you get to see uh, Jason shed a tear when I talk about my disdain for uh, explosions and car chases. Yeah, man, that that hit me in the soul. <laughs> that wasn't cool. <laughs> yeah, it's my whole being. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I think everyone will like it. He's a really nice guy, and it went well. But you said you had to. You want to talk about some book cover work you're doing? Um, yeah, I uh, just briefly I have been doing, I, I've done covers for years. I've done a lot of my own covers, but I've been doing some commission pieces, lots of pre-mades. I've sold a lot of pre-mades. Um, I've done three or four commission pieces, uh, only a couple. No, actually I did, I think 14, but uh, most of my, I haven't been able to show cause, uh, yeah, three or four. Three. No, actually I forgot that I did a seven book series. So I counted that as one. Um, okay. <laughs> but uh, yeah, most of them I, I can't show on my website or anything because you know they haven't done cover reveal. So um, yeah, I uh, have been trying to. I just got uh, the new Photoshop, the new Illustrator, the new InDesign. Um, getting a new computer tomorrow, uh, so I'm trying to invest to make even better covers, which I think my covers are pretty good. And I try not to. Um, there's something about looking at a cover and going, oh, I know who did that. Something about that bothers me. I don't know why. So okay. I try to make my covers look different. 
it would like they weren't done by the same person. And I guess that, that says a lot about my writing too. If you if you read one thing, you haven't necessarily read, um, you know, all of them. Sure. So, um, yeah, if anybody's looking, any publishers, especially, you know, uh, are looking for uh, another cover artist or any author, indie author, um, whatever, looking for covers, uh, I have pre-made still available up on my website at chadlotsky.com. In the show notes, as always, is our URLs for our writing pages. And, um, yeah, so hit me up if you want a... Uh, I, I the, most of the pre-mades are between seventy-five and hundred, and I do commissions for two hundred, and then an extra twenty-five for a wraparound. As long as you um, aren't have want basically essentially another cover on on your on the back. I mean, I don't I don't just do black and then font. I try to do you know make it look nice. But yeah, right. hit me up. Yeah, your work has gotten significantly better over a very short period of time. Thanks. Um, it's looking good. That's what I was saying. I think I'm going to have to get you to do some, <laughs> do a box set for me. Yeah. Let's do uh, you definitely, um, I mean, the improvement's been wild. So Thank I you. didn't expect you to get into doing cover art for other people, people, but it's cool that you're expanding out. Yeah, I didn't either. I, I, um, I sold uh, a pre-made right away when I showed it to a huge named author. Um, that made me really nervous when he said he wanted it. <laughs> and I, I think like, I know who you're talking about. And it's like, yeah, it's, it's, it's available. And then, um, sold a bunch of other ones. And I thought, well, maybe I, you know, I do this for myself. Maybe I should, you know, and then I got a commission job and, and I just learned along the way. I've, I've always been self-taught with everything, you know, that I do painting, skateboarding, guitar, whatever it is, I, I self-taught. So this is another one of those things. And it's easier to, to self-teach these days because you've got, uh, you know, University 101 YouTube over there where mm -hmm. anything that you need, you know, you need to fix your lawnmower, it's, you know, it's on there. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I, I've even learned a little bit of Photoshop and I am terrible at it. Yeah. Just YouTube, uh, YouTube helps. Definitely. So uh, with that, I think we'll just jump into our Alan Baxter interview. Sounds good. Get a lot written today? Yes. So, Alan, uh, when, whenever I see your, your face pop up or your name, one of the first things I think of are the, and, and I think it was the first time we interacted on Facebook or, or Twitter or something, was is about those awesome trophies that you have so many of that are like the demon head or whatever. What trophy is that for? Yeah, that is, do you have one nearby that you can show? Uh, okay, so for people with video, there's three there, and then that gravestone. Oh, that gravestone there is the the new version. The demon heads, unfortunately, um, we don't get anymore. The artists uh, moved to New Zealand, and uh, we can't get those anymore. Um, those are Australian Shadows Awards. So within within Australia, there's there's three major sort of genre awards. So the, the big one is the Aurealis Awards, which is across science fiction, fantasy, horror, all that sort of stuff, mm -hmm. which is a which is a judged award every year. And then we have the Dittmar Awards, which again is across cross genre, science fiction, fantasy, horror. Um, and that's more like a sort of mini Australian Hugo's. It's like a, a fan voted award. Mm -hmm. um, but then the Australian Shadows Awards are specifically for horror and dark fiction. Um, and they're a judged award. So the, the um, judging panels are convened um, every year. Um, every people submit work that, that qualifies um, from the year before. Uh, 
yeah, and it, and it's a judge uh, fiction and, and horror award, and I'm lucky enough to have won four of them. Um, so that is so awesome. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually currently great. ineligible to enter work. Have been for the last couple of years because the awards <laughs> managed by the Australasian Horror Writers Association, um, and mm-hmm. I'm now the president of the Australasian okay. Horror Writers Association. That so wouldn't look good then, yeah. Yeah, I've recused myself. It seems a big com- conflict of interest to actually enter into anywhere. But before I joined the AHWA committee, I, I was yeah fortunate enough to win four of them. So I'll probably enter again once I quit the presidency and, and pass it on to someone else. I'll, I might start entering again. But, yeah, they're, they're some of the best trophies, um, I was going to say in horror, but, I mean, in writing, they're just awesome. But yeah. also they are. You can see from the picture, if you're looking on video, they're bloody massive. So they take, they're up, huge. They take up so much shelf space. It's, it's awesome to have several, but it's also kind of a pain. It's like, where do you put them? Um, but that's a, that's a small complaint. I'm not going to let that uh, be a negative. Yeah, those are, those are probably the, that's probably why I, I, I was so enamored by it, because I haven't seen an award that looked that cool and, and that size. Yeah. The number of people I've said uh, I've spoken to have said, you know, if, if I move to Australia, can I can I enter and try to win one of these awards? And it's like, well, they're open to Australian citizens and residents. So yeah, if you move here permanently, you can start <laughs> entering your award. But now the the the, the new um, award is the, is the gravestone version. So yeah, we uh, yeah we had to get a, a new a new award because the the artist, to his credit, and moved from Australia to New Zealand and is working in movies and prop prop making and special effects in movies in New Zealand and with, when COVID hit he didn't dare come back and then risk not being able to then get back to New Zealand so he's mm. based there permanently now um, in order to to keep the work which means that we can't get those trophies anymore the molds for them and the rights for them are all in his Melbourne studio gathering oh stuff. okay so sadly that time has passed but... oh wow that sucks those are cool looking <laughs> yeah, 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 no, cool. yeah well I guess it's a bonus that you have uh, one that looks different, though. Than, than... Well, yeah, that's it. So my award shelf, it, you know, I've actually got four Australian Shadows Awards, but it looks like I've got different awards. So yeah, I've been yeah. nominated several times in the Orialis and, in the, Orialis and the Dip, Dip Mars, but I haven't actually won those yet. I've, mm-hmm. I think I've got 20-something nominations across the years in both of those awards, but I've yet to bring one home. So, uh, yeah, it's nice to have a variety of stuff up there, even though there's actually four, <laughs> four of the same yeah. awards. They're for different things. I've got, you know, for short fiction, for novella, for collection. So, yeah, different categories. Very cool. So um, how many – now, I know you're a hybrid uh, published, but how many of your – well, how many, first of all, how many books do you have? I know that's in the dozens. Yeah, well, <laughs> it's terrible when you can't answer that question, uh, which is what happened recently. So that's why I know now. Um the Fall, which just came out in April, which was the sequel to The Gulp, that was my 26th book, if you count um, the stuff that I co-write with David Wood, because David Wood and I, have uh, we co-write right. these kind of monster thrillers and, and sort of occult thrillers. Um, and we've written eight books together, so so, yeah, so 18 of my own, or 26 if you count the stuff with David Wood, yeah. Now, the stuff with, with uh, Wood, are those self-published as well? No, those are published through um, Adrenaline Press, which is uh, a small independent press in the US. Um, so there's Griffinwood Press, who I've been working with for years and years. Um, and part of my first two novels were with Griffinwood Press, and then subsequently I wrote a standalone novel that was sold to Ragnarok Press, and they were going to publish it right before they kind of went under. And um, that that then got picked up along with my Alex Kane books by Griffinwood Press. And mm-hmm. Adrenaline Press is an imprint of Griffinwood, and they publish the um, 
the uh, Jake Crowley and Sam Aston books that I write for Dave. So out of the 26 books, um, how many are self-published? Uh, so the, the Rue, which is the crazy gonzo monster novella, um, was was the first one when I started self-publishing again. I did self-publishing back in the day, and then I kind of started working with Big and Indie Press instead, and then I kind of gone back to self-publishing a bit. So there was the Rue and the Gulp um, and the Four, which is the new one out. Those are the three self-published ones most recently. I've also self-published a couple of novellas that were in other things that I subsequently reissued as books on their own, um, mm-hmm. uh, a sort of a, like a Chinese historical fantasy novella and a and a, a science fiction fantasy kind of thing that was serialized on my blog. Uh, I, I serialized it across the course of about like eight months or something back in the day, and then I collected that and self-published that as well. So, um, and then I have a, a small writer's guide that's a, basically I, I teach workshops on writing fight scenes, um, and people kept asking, "Is there a book about this?" So I basically expanded the workshop into a short ebook and, and self-published that. So that's cool. The, um, fight scenes that that's something I don't know that I'm. It's necessarily a weakness of mine as much as it is. I just hate it because. Uh, they kind of bore me when, but I'm also that guy who I don't, I'm not a big fan of like car chases and explosions and stuff that bores me too. Like, like, uh, watching it on a movie. Uh, Yeah, I know Jason, you don't, you don't even want to be my friend anymore. You're hurting me with this. Yeah. Um, (laughs) I mean, there are, modified scenes are really boring. That's partly why I teach the workshops because, uh, yeah, people get it wrong. It's weird because I get, I get more satisfaction and I'm more entertained out of like, an indie film, like an indie drama where they're just sitting in a room having a, a deep conversation. I, there's something more about that that I get than, than watching a car chase. They just all feel, I don't know if it's because I can't relate. I've never been in a car chase and I've never been near an explosion like that. So <laughs> but having, you know, having this, this really well-written conversation or, or whatever, um, you know, a lot of the, my favorite movies are small cast of characters, isolated incidents, um, and just the, the small real life things that happen and that you watch the people go through that kind of stuff really holds my attention. Yeah. For some reason the, so when I'm writing, when I'm forced to write a, a, a fight scene, I get kind of, I get kind of bored. I, the only fight scenes that I guess that don't really bore me that I've read are maybe Joe Lansdale. Um, and I don't that know if that's, I don't know if that's well, because, Martial arts history as well. That, yeah, that's, that, that's largely what it comes down to. Um, and you know, I, I hear I, I'm kind of I, I I'm across all of it. I love those quiet um, talking head dramas, and, and I love a mad, full-on explosions action movie. Um, but you know, I it, <laughs> stories have, require a different pace, require a different you know a set of th- set of um, circumstances. But a lot of the time even for a story that does require a lot of fighting and whatever it else, most people don't really get fighting. Fortunately, most people actually haven't fought that much. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so a lot of the time what they know about fighting is what they've seen in the movies, and the movies are, very, are a very specific medium. It's, it's turn-based and it's two-dimensional. It's designed for the medium of film, and that doesn't translate well to writing. Um, actual fighting, I, I've had a lifetime as a, a martial artist and a teacher, and I've fought a lot, and you know, when you know what it sort of looks and sounds and smells and feels like to actually fight and you put that into the page, you're not then suddenly transposing a book into a transcript of a film for 
five pages and then going back to the book, you're staying in the same medium mm -hmm. and, and doing a good job of it, which is kind of where the workshops came from. Um, and yeah, so it's, it's about that authenticity. And, you know, I, it, I don't like the whole writing rules and write what you know stuff because we'd yeah. always be freaking boring. I mean, I've never met a demon, but I've written about them. Sure. Um, so, but it's about, it's about sort of learn about what you want to write about, you know? So a lot of the time people will think, ah, oh, I know what fight scenes are like. I've seen plenty of movies with fights, but that's not really what fighting is like. It's, that's not yeah. especially authentic. So, and, you know, short of going down the pub and picking a fight with someone to get a feel for it, you could go to martial arts classes and train or whatever. But you kind of do need that idea of what it is like to fight so that that authenticity comes over. And singularly, almost always, the biggest problem is people write fight scenes that are too long and with too much detail. Um, and a fight is fast and visceral and crazy and chaotic and, you know, half the time you don't know what's happening. The, the most common thing you hear at the end of a fight from someone who just lost is what happened. You know, they, they wake up. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, they're like, well, if they knew what happened, they probably would have avoided the hit, you know. Um, so if you can sort of get that fast, visceral, intense feeling into your fight scenes in a written way, then you don't suddenly jack people out of a book with a boring transcription, description situation and then try to get back to a story. So, that, you know, the, horses for courses, different things required for different reasons. My fight scenes are usually pretty brutal and visceral and sort of short, but I also know fighting so hopefully i do a half decent job of it what you said your martial arts background what is that uh so well my day job i, I run a kung fu academy i've been i've done martial arts since i was tiny since i was a kid in in primary school um i started i learned judo and then traveled through lots of different styles i've trained in karate and muay thai and different stuff and then when i was in my teens i just i discovered chinese kung fu um and i've been training and teaching that ever ever since and so i run a small academy now in the country town where i live and i'm part of the international organization so you know martial arts has been part of my life just forever you know in the 90s and early aughts i was fighting and doing a lot of tournament and stuff and i was a british national champion in the in the somewhere around mid late 90s i can't remember 96 95 96 something like that um and and these days i just i teach other people to do it so. Yeah. My body's my body's not so not so <laughs> comfortable taking the hits anymore. Well, I would like to talk to you about Steven Seagal if you have. <laughs> I'm, I'm just <laughs> kidding. I, I've reviewed a bunch of his really horrible movies. Oh, I just like so trashing bad. on the guy. Yeah, <laughs> Jason has a really successful YouTube channel called So Bad It's Good, where they watch um, really bad movies and they rate whether it's just a bad movie or whether it's so bad it's good. And there's a lot of commentary, hilarious commentary, and. Their biggest, his most successful YouTube videos are when they do a Steven Seagal movie in, and um, yeah, that's not even close. People love trashing that guy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, yeah, like I said, don't get me started. I, yeah, I'm, I'm blue. Yeah. <laughs> there, there, are certain, there are certain people who are just like eternally awful. Um, yeah, he's one. So yeah, I, I take I it he's him. he's he's just a poser at this point, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's also like Putin's puppet. He's sits there floating around in Moscow, thinking he's <laughs> some kind of king shit, and he's this washed-up movie star who was never that great in the first place. You know, so. ten I bucks, love his airline the best. Ten bucks says that if he is in Moscow, uh, he's got a Russian accent already. Oh, <laughs> probably because yeah, that's his thing, man. He just he's like the chameleon of horrible accents. He's, <laughs> it would be a bad Russian accent too. He's a gem. Yeah. 
totally switching gears. I wanted to go back to the Rue. I remember when this came yep. out. Was it really 2020 when you released it? Um, yes. Oh man, yeah, for sorry, some reason I, I feel like I what saw... year it was now. Yeah, so yeah, the Rue came out at the start of 2020. The Gulp came out at the start of 2021, and the Fall came out last month, April 2022. So yeah, yeah, that's right. Okay, I, that shocks me because I remember that cover going around. Yeah. I remember seeing it on Twitter, no. like barely on Twitter, and I saw that cover, and I was like, "Oh man, I yeah. kind of want to that read a, a kangaroo strange, book." <laughs> yeah, I know it was a strange phenomenon. You know how it started, right? Like it started because of the cover. So there was a there was a news article going around about a kangaroo in the Northern Territory, who, and it basically said um, this, this rogue <clears throat> rogue roo is going around this small town, digging up gardens and terrorizing the the, the inhabitants, the townsfolk. Um, and loads of people were laughing and joking about this news article going out, oh, you know, it's parody. It's got to be a joke, obviously. And <clears throat> I was, I sort of was there on Twitter. I was like, no, that's true. Actually, sometimes ruse can be real dicks. Um, and so this, this whole sort of conversation started about it. Um, and then Keelan Patrick Burke um, mm-hmm. mocked up an old zebra horror cover called the Rue because you're joking about, you know, this rogue kangaroo terrorizing a town. Mm-hmm. Someone said, oh, God, that sounds like a you know an old zebra horror from the 80s and so keelan mocked up this cover because he's a fantastic cover designer mm-hmm. um and he just kind of knocked together um a simple version of it and and uh posted it on twitter for a joke and then everybody was basically saying holy shit that's amazing that that cover deserves a book someone needs to write the book to go with that cover i remember um, that and as i was the only australian in the conversation at the time people started going hey, Alan, you need to write the book and i started getting dms from people and stuff no seriously it would be amazing write a book about a killer kangaroo um so i contacted Killen and i was like hey can i have that cover because i was thinking you know this was right in the um but it was was around the end of 2019 when all this was going on um and i was kind of mixed in with things trying to get stuff done and i had this idea for a short story and i was looking for a monster to write this short story and then it occurred to me it's like i could actually expand that and instead of use those story ideas but use a kangaroo go a bit gonzo with it instead just for fun and i said to keelan hey you know can i have that cover if if i can have the cover i'll write the story how much do you want for it um and he said oh look that's too shabby if you're going to actually use it i'll do a proper one and he gave me a really good rate and did the proper version of the cover um and and let me have that and so then i wrote the book to go with it and just self-published it it's like a thirty thousand word novella um and i just it was basically a joke i was like oh you know that'll be mm-hmm. fun i'll drop this it'll be a, a bit of a laugh and people kind of went nuts for it yeah <laughs> i said before if all my books were as popular and sold as well as the rue i'd be i'd be a lot better off than i am now it's 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 it seems for especially that first year of release it was just going ballistic it was amazing um, but now I'm the Rue guy, which is also, <laughs> and <laughs> I'm trying to push beyond those boundaries now. Equally though, because that was so well received and people were so like, this is pure Australian horror. This is fantastic. We need more of this. That's what made me go ahead and write the gulp because I'd had the ideas for these stories set in this weird Australian harbour town. Uh, and I kind of wanted to write these stories and was just not really sure there was going to be that much interest. Was it worth the effort doing it? And because the Rue went so popular, I was like, well, shit, maybe I will. And so I, I, and that would, then we were deep in the pandemic. So rather than trying to concentrate on bigger projects, I was trying to transition my Kung Fu school to teaching via Zoom. We had my kid home. So we were doing homeschooling because the schools were closed and all that. Um, 
so I was like, you know what, I'm just going to write those Australian harbour town horror stories that I've been harbouring for so long. And so that's how the gulp came about. So the Rue effectively led directly to the gulp. This is, yeah, that's sort of the process we went through. Speaking of the gulp, I just uh, uh, I bought it recently. I just finished it a couple of days ago. Oh. It was a lot of fun. That was a, that was a lot of fun. Um, oh, I'm glad you liked it. It was, uh, yeah, every story, there's five, five essentially novellas in there and mm. or novelettes and and um they're all very different um different levels of intensity and gruesomeness i think that my i, I can't remember the titles right offhand but uh i think um mother blossom or something like that um oh, mother in bloom mother in bloom. the t-shirt i'm wearing at the moment as well because oh, yeah, yeah. limited I, edition and that's the cover i, I saw i saw paul uh thunderstorm paul post something and i as i was reading that and i was like that must be from that story that that artwork yeah, that's right yeah it, um, it, a lot of people call it their favorite that one yeah i noticed that too when i when i you know I, I, you do your goodreads update and it posts to twitter and and a couple people uh, mentioned that yeah. uh, uh, that story and that would that was my favorite and the one uh, i think it's called 48 to go yeah was my other favorite um yeah well that those five stories like that was the idea is that I wanted to sort of dig into a, a different vibe of horror mm-hmm. with each story. There's like body horror, there's crime horror, there's yep. uh, al- almost like a, a twist on a, a vampire kind of idea and, mm-hmm. uh, but all pinned together by being set in the same weird place. Um, and as when you get to the end of those five, you realize that they're all kind of interconnected, like characters and situations cross over and crop up in different stories. Yeah, that uh, was very yeah, cool. That, that was the five. And then the fall is another set of five, and across all ten you get the, the bigger picture. So mm-hmm. I was kind of terrified I wouldn't pull it off, but the reviews so far of the fall, people seem to be really pleased, and it sounds like I've basically pulled off this idea, you know, five, what, ten novellas across two books making essentially one kind of mosaic novel. And so, yeah, seems to have worked so far. I'm pleased with the reception. I don't know that I've read anything, you know, I haven't read Goblin and I know there's, I know it didn't start with Mailman. I know this, you know, people doing this for years, but I don't know that I've ever read one, but the idea um, really appeals to me, um, you know, having those, cause I, I do Easter eggs anyway, but to strengthen mm-hmm. those eggs and, and have them, you know, in, in weave together even more sounds, uh, especially if you're doing, cause I, I'm such a, uh, everything I write is so short. So writing something that's between 20 and 30,000 words uh, seems feasible and then putting them together. So maybe yeah. one day I'll give it a shot. Yeah, it's worth it. It's worth it. I, I, te- I seem to be, I do well with shorter fiction. I mean, I've got my eighth solo novel is coming out with Cemetery Dance later this year. Um, and I really enjoy full length novels. And so, you know, that is something I do as well. But I really enjoy short fiction, and especially with horror and dark fiction, that novella length, anything mm-hmm. between about sort of 10, 15, up to 35,000 words, you can tell some really great stories. And I really like to play in that. And I love that whole um, sort of anthology vibe, like, you know, creep show and that sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, and then there's things like Stephen King, you know, with Derry has a lot of, yes. or Castle Rock more particularly, Castle probably Rock, has yeah. a lot of stuff that repeats in those places. So it was all those kind of vibes I wanted to play with. And it was interesting when I wrote the Gulp, Goblin, Josh Mellerman's Goblin was only available in the, whatever it was, Earthling Publications or whatever. I didn't, mm-hmm. I didn't get it. Um, and so I didn't, and a lot of people kept saying, oh, you know, and even Sarah Pinborough, I was lucky enough that she said, oh, you know, this is like 
you know, if you enjoy Goblin, you need to read Tales from the Gulf. So it's like, wow, that's a hell of an endorsement. Uh, and then it finally, Goblin finally got its um, sort of mass release. Yeah. And I got a copy and I, I, I was like, okay, I get it. I see why people keep drawing these comparisons. Um, and there is that cool thing about having one location. And that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to create this universe that I could revisit. And so Goldpepper is this little town in the middle and north and south of it are these two bigger towns. And that whole sort of fictional geographic region I can play with now. Um, there's a sh short story set in one of the towns that's coming out in an anthology from Bad Hand Press later this year. I'm working on a novel at the moment that's set in the hills up behind those towns. And so I just get to, like you said, you get to play with those Easter eggs. Then you get to sort of, you know, push them a little bit further. And so even if it's just something as simple as someone goes, oh, God, that's Endon. That's the town from, you know, that's north of Goldpepper. You, you just mention it in passing and carry on. I'm such a nerd that I just love that stuff. And so I assume other people get into that stuff as well. So, yeah, yeah these little mentions and these little extra bits for constant readers, you know. Yeah. You mentioned you self-published and then you started dealing with presses and now you're getting into self-publishing again. What's made you do the transition back and forth? Um, well, when, when I, so when I first when I was first kicking off, um, <clears throat> I, I did the whole thing. I got an, with my first novel. I got an agent um, and we went to the major publishers and, and twice we got as far as acquisitions with the big publishers and it never quite got over the line. Um, and this was back in the day when, you know, the beginning of the new renaissance of self-publishing, I'm talking like 2006 or so, I think. Um, and so I just decided, well, I'll, I'll just see what it's like, you know, with print on demand and the rise of eBooks and all that sort of stuff. Um, so I self-published the first novel and then in the meantime, wrote the sequel to it and then reissued the first one and along with the second one, um, and that was good, but it, what it also showed to me at the time was that there was a lot of work in self-publishing that I didn't want to do. Um, although, you know, the, the rewards are there. Um, but then when Griffinwood Press offered to pick up those two books, well, that was great. I was like, yeah, cool. That's good. I can just get on with the writing, which I did. And then, um, you know, I kept working. I sold a trilogy to HarperCollins here in Australia um, and was also then working with other small press, um, Australian small press and US small press. Um, and that was ticking along well. And then a couple of times, because of the way publishing changes so rapidly, um, a couple of times publishers collapsed and took books with them. And I was I was fortunate enough to get the rights back and managed to, to do stuff with those. Um, but that also started me thinking that I needed to make sure I didn't have too many things in places that I didn't have much control over. Um, so while I had the HarperCollins trilogy and various other books with uh, indie presses, Australia, the UK and the US at the time, um, I started thinking, well, maybe I ought to also have at least a few things that are entirely under my control so that they're not subject to the vagaries of indie publishers going under or, you know, changes to the industry that I can't have any effect on. Um, and I started thinking about maybe I should get back into self-publishing and see what happens. Also, because by that point, I'd been at it for a while and I had a, a sort of a, enough of a following that I figured, you know, if, if I do release stuff independently, it's not going to be such a struggle like it was in the first instance, because I've got people who already kind of know about me and know about yeah, my Yeah, you've work. got a readership, yeah. 
Yeah, and plus the the process is easier because when I was first doing it, it was kind of new. It was a real, you know, a bit of a shit fight trying to figure out how everything works, whereas now it's so streamlined. And so when I was thinking about maybe I ought to do that, I hadn't decided what to do yet, and that's when the whole thing with the Rue came up, and I was like, well, there's there's the opportunity. If I buy that cover off Keelan, um, put it together, and so I sort of quickly sort of reskilled, went back and relearned how to do all that stuff and got some help with a couple of the indie presses that I work with, which was handy. They gave me some help with layout internally and stuff like that. Um, and so that was the kickoff to me doing stuff independently again. Uh, so I self-published The Rue and The Gulp and The Fall. But in the meantime, I do still pursue traditional publishing. Like I said, I've got a novel with Cemetery Dance later this year, which is which is great. I mean, they're a publisher I've been hoping to work with since, you know, forever. So mm-hmm. I think that diversification of there's stuff publishers can do for you that you can't do for yourself and there's stuff you can do for yourself that publishers can't do for you. Um, and if, if you're one of those people who sort of got the big five publisher and got a strong following and then that publisher constantly pushed you and constantly topped up the marketing budget and and pushed you then great you know that's that's the way you just do the writing they do all the work for you and you know that beyond that you you know that that does that's all you need but that's such a small percentage of writers right at the sort of top tier that get that fortunate and for most of us it's always going to be you know a jobbing sort of a gig and so I figure that the more variety you have going on the better so that's where I plan to be and if at some point some big publisher says we want to buy your back catalog we're going to promote the shit out of you and whatever you know maybe maybe go for it and see what happens because that bookstore penetration that big marketing budget that's that's what the big publishers can do that that we just can't manage on our own you know at least at the moment and there are still a lot of people who do shop by going into brick and mortar stores and asking you know what's new what's good kind of thing so it's all about trying to reach as wide a readership as possible. And so, yeah, that's that's a lot of what's behind the decisions I make. And also, largely, uh, the sort of you, you write the sort of books that not a lot of publishers are necessarily going to pick up. So it's like, well, I've got to do it myself. Sure. Yeah. Do you, you mentioned getting in bookstores. With any of your self-published stuff, have you tried using Barnes & Noble Press to get into, say, Barnes & Noble? Um. <laughs> Not especially, especially because being over here, that it's it's more of a it's more difficult. Um, we don't have we only have Barnes and Noble online here. Like we don't have mm. Barnes and Noble bookstores here. Um, there's a couple of bookstore chains. One of the biggest issues um, is that when you use Ingram for production, um, Australian bookstore chains don't have trade accounts with Ingram. They use Baker and Taylor as they're distributed mostly. There's a couple of um, other smaller distributors as well. But basically, it's difficult to get into a distributor um, where they're not basically pay- paying import prices for books. And books are already very expensive in Australia. Um, and so if you try to get through an indie store, they become even more expensive. And because they don't have accounts directly with Ingram, you can't really get them to sort of pick up and stock. And there are um, there are some sort of intermediary distribution companies that are bridging that gap um, and some of the small press in Australia are working with those companies um, in order to get in store but that's because they have a wider catalog and a bit more capital to back up um, putting stock out and taking returns which is I mean as you know that was really difficult to do that independently with just on your own with your own books like yeah, the capital required and the potential for loss on returns is is makes it prohibitive um, but equally there is a pretty strong independent 
bookstore um, vibe in Australia. And there's a handful of indie bookstores who we got to the point now where they'll actually email me and go, hey, new book out, send me this many. Um, and they'll actually, rather than taking consignments or sale or returns or whatever, they'll just buy them directly off me and, and put them on the shelves. And then every once in a while, hit me up for some new copies, which is awesome. So when it, with the independent stores, especially the genre stores um, who specialize in, you know, science fiction, fantasy, horror, that kind of thing, I do have a bit of a relationship with a bunch of those. And so I'm in, in those stores in, in the big cities. But generally, when it comes to that broad range bookstore chain distribution, it's almost impossible in this country to get that. Some of the smaller presses are starting to make inroads now with that, but yeah, not without capital, unfortunately. I mean, it, it's similar here. That's why I was curious. I don't know of too many indie authors who have had a lot of success selling in bookstores. Mm. Um, I mean, there's got to be a market there to be tapped, but I just, I'm not really sure of too many people who have done it at a, at a large there's level. Definitely a, there's definitely a, um, a market for it in terms of readers but it's one of those things where bookstores are not really keeping up with the industry in in those independent terms so they because they have relationship with distributors and distributors work with the major publishers and the major publishers issue the catalogs you kind of get that homogenous set of books that is always getting bought in and pushed out and you get those you know the de new debut books that get their six-week window in the bookstores, which is what happened with the Alex Kane trilogy with, with me and Harper Collins. You know, I was in, I was in all the bookstores. I was in airport bookstores. I would travel to a con and I would go in the airport bookstore and there's bound sitting on the shelf. It's mind blowing. It's cool, you know, but it was mm. dusted in no time. Uh, and it's still out there and it's still selling and it's still people, you know, bookstores can still order it and I still sell it at conventions and all that sort of stuff. Um, but that trans transitioning that idea and that process to a broader range of more independent stuff is the problem. And largely it's, it's, I think largely it's a case of bookstores don't have the staff to manage distribution of lots of titles. So they pretty much take what the publishers put through the catalogs that go through the main distributors, mm -hmm. which is understandable. You know, that most bookstores, that's why the indie stores are good because they do have a bit more time to look at what's out there and pick and choose stuff because they have a more focused, you know, attention of what they want in terms of genre. Um, but it would be really good if there was a, if there was a situation that could develop where you would have a decent distributor with a decent, um, policy on costs and returns and stuff that would catalog stuff outside of the big five publishers. Um, and that's sort of what's happening with some of the indie presses. Now they're starting to, to breach that gap by getting their catalogs into intermediary distributors, mm -hmm. but it's, it's a really difficult process. And again, particularly when it's just you doing it on your own, it, it it's hard. So uh, there are people have been talking about um, a bunch of, you know, they're saying, why don't indie authors like all get together and make like a kind of conglomerate of their own. So they're all independent themselves, but they put together a kind of a group catalog. They take that catalog to one of the distributors and that distributor then uh, approaches stores and then you know, funnels in and funnels back out again, and the indie authors can can supply to that distributor if it gets picked up. But of course, you know, there's a, there's a lot of stages, a lot of steps in that, and potentially a lot of cost. And books in Australia are already so expensive; it's yeah, not necessarily an easy process. I think we're getting there. I think people are slowly leaning more towards that. Um, they recognise the benefit of that, but it's a you know, birth pangs are slow. Sure, yeah. I have noticed that uh, the small presses are doing that, uh, focusing a lot more on distribution and um mm. which which seems um you know being traditionally published was always just like i think with any any writer it was always like 
the goal from the from the beginning, but then after listening to, you know, thousands of hours of all these self-publishing podcasts over the last eight years, that starts to become, you know, more, and then within stigma starts to go away, that became attractive. But now, you know, I've, I'm seeing some of these small presses that are worrying more about distribution, and then you're seeing books like Eric LaRocca's book who that sold like, you know, um, I don't know, 10,000 10, or 20,000 yeah, within like, like 10, the first... Bring copies, yeah, when it, within when the first like six weeks. <laughs> yeah, and it's like, I couldn't do that. I mean, you know, that's, that's especially for a standalone novella. You know, that's mm. like series stuff down the road. That's yeah, like that's series, yeah. different genre. And um, so, yeah, the the uh, I, I, I still self-publish. I still, you know, um, I'm going to continue being a hybrid. Um, but this distribution thing uh, excites me. And I know that St uh, Stygian Sky Media is big on that too. They just got to land at some deal with, I'm not exactly sure how it works, but with some somebody reputable that is just really going to help them with yeah. their uh, thing. They were just on the cover of, I can't remember what the name of the magazine is. But uh, I see bright things and I, and I see other small presses and I, and I know that, um, the the like the big five they you know you know they've got like eyes on what even self publishers are doing like how are you know because yeah. the, the some of these self publishers and you and I've seen you on like Joanna Penn and some some of those people are making way more than any traditionally published um, yeah person that, I mean that's true there's some indies out there who are absolutely killing it and and part of what got me the deal with Harper Collins in Australia for the Alex Kane trilogy was they were aware of the my first two novels, the, the, the Balanced Duology that came out. Mm. And when I was started talking to the editor there, she was aware of those two books and they okay. were asking me, they, I mean, they straight up asked me about numbers and stuff on those two books and what sort of following I had. And um, the, the, these things, even back then, this was, when, when was it, uh, 20, 2013, I signed that trilogy with HarperCollins. It came out 2014. Um and it's a shift. I mean, it's Harper Voyager, you know, it's the, mm -hmm. the SFF imprint of Harper Collins. And there's not really a Harper Voyager in Australia now. They're kind of, you know, these big industry publishers kind of shift their imprints and stuff. Um, so the books are still there and they're still effectively Harper Voyager. But it, the industry has changed so much just in that time that it's that it's different. But yeah. like you say, those big publishers do pay attention to what's going on. And the smaller publishers and the indies are trying to emulate a, a version of the distribution that the big publishers do. And I do kind of see it all slowly coming together a bit more. And I, I do kind of see a point, you know, there was a time when if you wanted to self-publish, you had to find a printer and have, you know, a thousand copies in boxes in your garage. Yeah. Um, whereas now with print on demand and stuff, of course, that takes that weight away from us. And now we also have the big publishers who are not doing the print runs anymore. They're going, well, once these books uh, go off the main shelves we'll keep them in print by moving them to print on demand and they fulfill orders the same way that we do so harper collins are filling orders through print on demand the same as i am sitting here in this room mm -hmm. and and so that sort of blur comes together and like i'm same as you i'm a little bit excited about how distribution might work because i can see that starting to happen as well that those lines become a bit more blurred and stuff can go into distribution whether you have a, an account with a big publisher or whether you're an indie doing it on your own there might be pathways to find those, you know, that distribution catalog that can potentially then go through to bookstores. And, you know, the, the big publishers do pick up the indie successes. And I know indie successes are 
don't want to be picked up. A friend of mine who writes fantasy in Australia signed uh, an amazing deal with Audible for a new fantasy series, like a six-figure deal with Audible, mm. and he was self-publishing before, and for whatever reason, his audiobooks went ballistic. And then Harper Voyager US came to him and said they wanted to pick up the series, um, and they were offering him big money for the series, and he, he was like, well, print an ebook, sure, but I've got a great deal with Audible, and they were like, well, no, we want audio as well. And he said, well, you can't have audio because that the deal with audible is too good and you can't match it. I'm making a very short version of this. Um, and in the, in the long run, he ended up going back to self publishing the print and ebook version because the deal with audible for the audio book was too lucrative to turn down. So he's effectively still self published in print and ebook, um, mm-hmm. and signed directly to audible for the audio books. And, you know, he actually turned down, arguably the biggest genre publisher in the world for a trilogy series because they couldn't match what he was offered for the audio book. And so he self-published those and he's doing fine, you know, doing great. So yeah. Wow. Yeah. The, all the lines are blurring all over the place. Mm-hmm. Speaking of audio, have you had some success there? I know with, it's harder with shorter fiction, particularly on audible to get a foothold. Yeah, it is. It, it, I do. I'm, some of my stuff is in, is in audio. Um, the Griffinwood, who picked up the Alex Kane series in the US, which is the one with HarperCollins here, um, and who picked up the original duology, those five are, are all in audio, um, and they also um, organised Hidden City, which is a standalone sort of weird urban horror novel that I wrote. Um, that's also in audio, in audio and on Audible. Um, the stuff I write with Dave Wood, I was going to say all of that. I'm not sure if the last one is done yet but basically those are all on audible as well um but the other indie stuff that i've done the short fiction collections and novella collections um i've got a novel called devouring dark with gray matter press uh and a the eli carbon novella series with gray matter press uh those aren't in audio yet it's a bit more difficult to try to to get those organized and so yeah it's i often get it's your stuff (laughs) in audio it's like well yeah some is some isn't you know but um the stuff that is seems to be doing okay. I don't really seem to be going big in audio at this point, but again, that could partly be because my my whole catalog's not available in audio, in audio yet. So, yeah, it's it's yeah, I don't know. It's a bit of a mystery, but it would be good to get those things done. But especially with the indie stuff, you know, when you're looking at a, when you're looking at good um, audio book production at probably at least 150 US dollars per finished audio hours, it's the big commitment to you know if you've got a 10-hour novel or a 10-hour collection it's a that's a big chunk of change to just drop in the hope that it gets made back in audio which would potentially take a long time without that you know without that backing so Mm -hmm. yeah yeah i don't know i'd like to see it all in audio it's the fastest growing segment of publishing at the moment you know more people are are getting into audio everything else is still doing okay and audio is like skyrocketing but yeah it's it's an expensive proposition so yeah, Audible's flipped that market in such a weird way with the membership model because yeah. anything under seven hours, I mean, good luck. You're really going to struggle to sell that because people don't want to use a credit on it. Yeah, and if people and, use a credit for 15 hours or for three hours, they're going to use it for 15 probably. So Yeah, and, and I can see from my books the longer sales are. You know, I have a five-hour book on there. doesn't sell shit. Six yeah. hour does not that great. Once I start hitting seven plus, it starts doing better. And then I put a box set up and that's been doing great. 
because it's over 20 hours. So yeah. one credit, people are super happy with that. Yeah, you how get you, a trilogy for a credit. That's good, isn't it? <laughs> how do you yeah. do a box set if you have different... Can you do a box set if you have different narrators for... Like, like, for my, like if I want to take three or four novellas, put those into a box set, can I even do that with different... If you narrators? own the rights, sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, I have a royalty split. Oh, uh, I, I don't think you could do that. Okay. No. So the I one know. I did is all with the same narrator for the one yeah, royalty split. Yeah, I, I figured... Yeah. Right. So that was easy. And, uh, you know, he likes the money. So <laughs> that was uh, that was an easy sell. Um, any other want, questions you want to throw no, in? No. Do you want to hit him with your with the last two? Yeah, sure. Same ones. So we ask everyone this, and we've gotten some really interesting answers. So don't screw it up, man. Yeah. <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> You're doing good so far. Of, <laughs> of all the things you've done throughout your career, what is the one thing that you would say did not give you a good return on investment. The one thing you would tell people don't waste your time doing it, whether it's blogging or and any, literally anything. Wow. Um, it's a tough one. I mean, generally speaking, the vast majority of advertising that you can afford as an indie is not worth the cost. Um, it, these days it's changing a little bit. I think like with, you know, with Amazon ads and, and targeted Facebook advertising and stuff, you can develop the skills to to really target stuff and, and get good returns sometimes. And I know some people do. I know there's a there's an independent um, publishing group. Um, I had to quit. It was a bit too cultish for my liking. It was a group on Facebook. Um, but uh, Dave is Woody still there. And he says, <clears throat> you know, he, he jokes about the people who complain that they dropped 50 grand on Facebook advertising this year and only got 150 grand back. Um, when they dropped 30 grand the year before on May 200 and stuff like this. It's like the numbers are just kind of insane. But these are people who make it basically a full-time job to just – so they'll sit there for three hours a day watching the watching the analytics and constantly tweaking these ads and watching the click-throughs mm -hmm. and all that sort of stuff. It's like, man, I can't be that kind of accountant. You know, like that's, that's not what I want. They'll churn out 10 books a year, you know, like 50,000-word novels in a series and just smash them out one a month. Um, and, but basically spend most of their time tweaking algorithms. Um, and as far as I can tell, unless you're willing to put something like that level of effort into things, that whether it's online advertising, print advertising, anything else generally does not really give you much return on investment um, compared to trying to build an organic readership just through general kind of interaction and putting out books and and being part of a community, basically, whether it's online or on the convention circuit and all that stuff. For me, what works basically is time in the game, putting out books, being around. Take, I never, you know, more often than not, I'll never say no to an opportunity if it comes up, if I get invited to guest at a con or if I get invited to a group signing or whatever. I will almost always say yes if it's feasible to do it because everything you do might attract one reader. That one reader might be someone who drops a blog review to a thousand readers who then, you know, you, you never, you can never um, sort of plan for that kind of fractal expansion. So you just kind of take those opportunities. But when you try to create that with advertising or stuff, it just, it never really seems to work for me. But, you know, like I said, I'm not really that kind of accountant. I can't really figure it out, tweak the, tweak the numbers and, and target the ads the same sort of way. So, for me, generally, just being around and writing books is what works. And when I actually try to advertise anything specifically, it just doesn't seem to doesn't seem to work. Let you know, I've paid 
you know, I've dropped a hundred bucks for a quarter page ad in some horror magazine or just crickets, you know, seeing nothing off it. So yeah, th th those sort of things for me, they just don't seem to work. If you don't, if you have that kind of big publisher marketing budget where you can drop a big chunk of change to really saturate something, like if you could afford billboards or, or ads on buses, those ads would probably pay back. But when you don't have that kind of money to drop into advertising, you can't see that kind of return on investment. So if you're trying to drop lots of small amounts into ads, you're, piss, you're just kind of pissing that money away. As far as I can tell, it just doesn't seem to return. So, yeah. All right. What do you think has worked the best for you? Time, honestly. Um, like I've, I've watched by, by being around, by putting books out by sort of consistently trying to make sure that what I put out there is, is good um, and slowly building relationships with reviewers who have, you know, picked up my work and offering them the next thing. And just kind of being in the game and producing work. I mean, there's that, that whole sort of principle, you know, the best advertising for your book is to write another book or to write the next book. As far as I can tell, that really seems to be the thing that does work. Um, sometimes I get, you know, that people say, oh, you know, prolific author Alan Baxter. It's, author, it's almost like prolific is a pejorative. It's like, you know, it's like, that's not a bad thing. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. But a lot of the time that when people see you putting work out, a lot of the time if readers finally decide to check something out, it's often because sometimes it's because there's just a massive appeal for whatever reason in that particular title or cover or whatever they see. But for a lot of readers, it'll be like, okay, I keep seeing this guy's name around. Yeah. What's this one? And they'll check and they'll see that if they like it, there's this back catalog to go through. Yep. There's these things they can look at. And so they go, you know what? I'll give it a chance because everybody's looking not only for a good read, but people people are looking for new favorite authors. And if they know that there's someone that if they try this book and they really like it, there's 10 more books by that same person. It's, it's kind of a safe bet to mm -hmm. go, well, that's great. That, that takes care of some reading for me, you know? That seems to be what really works. So, you know, sort of frequently, you know, it doesn't have to be five a year or even one a year or whatever, but when you've been in the game for a while and you've got a back catalogue of several books and you're developing some kind of reputation for quality in what you do, that to me seems to be what has slowly built my readership more than anything else. Yeah, I 100% agree with that. And that's been my experience uh, perfectly. Everything yeah. you just said, yeah. Outstanding. Well, thanks so much for coming on, man. It was great talking to you. No worries. Thanks for having me. It's good to meet you guys. Yeah, it was. It was good to finally, you know. I mean, we haven't talked a lot, but it's good to finally, you know, see your face, meet you. Yeah, yeah. It's something that there's that much interaction online that it's um, you kind of know a lot of people and you talk to a lot of people, but you don't do this thing where you stop and actually have a chat, which is, yeah, yeah. it's nice to do that and get this a bit more human, isn't it, than typing yeah. through Twitter or whatever. Definitely. I mean, anything is more human than being on Twitter. <laughs> True. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Twitter is just a, it's just a snapshot of the worst of humanity a lot of the time. Although, having said that, I am a big fan of Twitter, and but I curate my Twitter feed ruthlessly. I will I will block and mute with abandon because you know people oh, echo chambers and whatever. It's like, well, no, I wouldn't stand in a pub and listen to some dickhead ranting on at me about stuff. I would walk away, and I I kind of treat. Twitter the same way. It's like, you know, there's so many great people out there. There's so many interesting conversations to have. Every time idiots come along, just bang, block them, block them, just get, get them gone. And so I think that's really this. You don't have to subject yourself to the worst of Twitter. And I think, yeah, I, I think ruthlessly curating your Twitter feed um, turns it into a pretty good place to be. So, yeah. 
you still get caught in the storms, of course, but yeah. <laughs> All right, man. Thank you so much. Appreciate you. No worries. Thanks for having me.